Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup. My name is Andile Masugo. And I'm still the former happy in case you're wondering. <laughs> Technically, we're not here, so... <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, we're still who we are, but we're not here. I don't know how that works. Probably listening to a holocaust of us or a ghost, I don't know. But we're still here. Hope you enjoy it. A hologram, you mean? Holocaust, oh my goodness. Please cut that out. (laughs) (laughs) We're not cutting that out. Okay, hologram, yes. A hologram, like Tupac. (laughs) Omzegezeg. Omzegezeg, Well, look, if you're a regular on the show, you'll know that we usually round up the week's most important tech, digital, and innovation news from across the African continent. But as we're technically still not here, uh, this is the second week of a four-week break that the entire team at the African Tech Roundup is taking before we resume our regular programming in 2016, boy. We're sharing exclusive content from the annual Roundup 2015 event we hosted at the Wondrous Club Johannesburg last month, November 2015. That's right, the event was powered by the good people at Opera Africa who are totally all about helping us all do more. With over a quarter of the 350 million or so users they have globally being in Africa, Opera is committed to making sure the continent is not left behind as the next billion people are brought online. And they're doing this by investing in various important ventures that seek to grow infrastructure, improve affordability, and fund educational initiatives. For more on the specifics, visit opera.com. This week, we're letting you in on a panel discussion that covered some of the highlights from Africa's tech startup scene in 2015. It features the head of communications and public affairs at Google South Africa, Mitch Atagana, and an entrepreneur magazine columnist and co-founder of LexNove, Andrew Taylor. By the way, if you're joining us for the first time, you know, stop listening and go catch up. Head straight to africantechroundup.com to catch up on what you've been missing all year. Don't know where you've been. Uh, And while you're there, do yourself a favor by signing up for our weekly newsletter to get the podcast sent straight to your inbox every Monday. Also, for fun behind-the-scenes stuff and daily news bites and other candid commentary we'll be sharing through the festive season, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle on both platforms is at African Roundup. And we are also on Facebook like a billion other people. Check us out at facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. And with all that said, it's time to roll the tape. Enjoy. Uh, We'll start easy. Bootstrapping or VC funding, Mitch? Bootstrapping. Bootstrapping. Uh, co-working space or working from home, Andrew? Uh, working from home. Co-working space. Uh, dine, uh, dive in head first. Can't even read my own writing. Uh, dive in head first or side project, Mitch? Ooh, side project. Dive in head first. All right. Suit and tie or jeans and sneakers, Andrew? Uh, suit and tie. Jeans. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Touche. Both of you walking the talk, as it were. Uh, noodles or pizza, Mitch? Pizza. Pizza. Um, Glad we could agree on at least one thing, Mitch. <laughs> okay, good. And then finally, do you have to be stark raving mad, do you think, to start a startup, or do you have to be stoic, i.e. emotionless? Crazy mad. Just crazy. I think a solid blend of both. Okay. I don't think you can be one without the other, to be honest. And Spoken like a true solid. lawyer. We <laughs> 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 have both. A little, okay. A little bit of both. So uh, you, you've been around Africa for 18 months. Where did you go? Oh, I went to about 22 countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so Why? 
I'll, I'll tell you why now. Okay, cool. <laughs> I used to run a website called memeburn.com, which also published VentureBurn. And when we launched VentureBurn, I said, why? Because who needs another startup entrepreneur site anyway? But when we launched it, I sat and I looked at it and I thought, we're very South Africa-focused. I understand what's happening in South Africa, at least I'm trying to, but I don't know what is happening everywhere else in Africa. So I packed my bags and I called all my friends from university and asked them if their couches are open so I could go learn about the African tech and startup ecosystem. So I went, I spent a lot of time in Nigeria, Kenya, Zim, even Zambia. Um, I went to Kinshasa where I had to wear a bulletproof vest again to one building, so that was interesting. Um, I went to Tanzania, um, I went to Egypt, I went to Morocco. I wanted to understand what Africans did with technology when given it and what African entrepreneurs wanted to achieve with technology. And, and who paid for this extravagance? Um, yeah. <laughs> she sold out for peanut butter and wine. Ex- <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Africa is really expensive to travel in. That's, I'm going to actually write a book about that. It's really expensive to travel in Africa. So sometimes I went on the kindness of PR companies who wanted me to come speak at events or be part of panels like this. Um, other times I used my savings. Sometimes me and Bern paid. Sometimes I kind of segued friends' weddings and holidays. I actually asked a friend to move their wedding once just so they could accommodate a conference I wanted to attend. That's reasonable. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's a, I think it's a reasonable thing to ask for your friend. It's <laughs> yeah. nice. Friends should just be nice like that. Um, so a, a lot of it was kind of beg, borrow, really beg, and just make it happen. Wow. Yeah. And so why would you study law, Andrew? Why of all the I things in the world, of all the, uh, of all the bodies of knowledge... <laughs> so I think it's actually an in interesting universe, segue from, law? from what Mitch was saying. Um, I studied law because that's what I thought I wanted to do. I read a Wilbur Smith book when I was in grade five and decided that it was always going to be law, it was always going to be Stellenbosch, um, and then I'd go and take over the world. <laughs> then I got into the conventional legal environment, spent four years there, uh, lived the corporate lifestyle, and uh, realized very quickly that it wasn't for me took a year sabbatical, kind of like what Mitch did, traveled around the world, um, met a girl on a bus in Turkey, and brought her back to South Africa. Spent eight months in that law firm and she realized... She was willing, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Depends who you ask. <laughs> uh, no, no, she was. Um, and came back, spent eight months in, a, in the conventional environment again, and realized that this just wasn't going to be enough. And I think that much like Mitch may have realized, uh, travel gives you that perspective and I think creates within you a moral imperative to do something that is different from the way things are. Because uh, you really get to learn um, the way that people live and what drives people across, across the world, not just in Africa. And I think coming back and uh, like having a legal skill set was definitely something that I wanted to leverage in terms of my startup um, ambitions. And so you come from polar opposites, the two of you, Mitch and Andrew, at the moment. Mitch, you, you work for what qualifies as a startup still, I think. Um, yeah. and uh, the world's big startup. Yeah, <laughs> easily one of the world's biggest startups. And you are just getting started with Lexnove, Andrew. Correct. So I, I, want, I want to sort of uh, get a sense of your perspectives of the startup scene. Uh, with the, looking back on the year that was, sitting at the vantage point of being at Google, you know, this, you know what, what, what sort of comes to mind? What are the sort of ideas, the words that sort of come to mind thinking about startups in 2015, given all the data you're exposed to at Google and, 
and what you've come to see and having worked for smaller startups before, Mitch? Okay. So, um, you know, when you search stuff at Google, you know it suggests things as autocomplete. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Nigeria, South Africa, and Kenya, if you search how to, the first autocomplete is how to make money, mm. um, which means Africans really want to know how to make money quickly. Okay. Which is a good thing. Uh, the last year, so I've, I've been at Google about a year now, actually just a year um, this month. And I haven't been as active in the startup ecosystem as I used to be. So I haven't contributed a lot to what's happening, more observant, which is actually giving me more time to read and understand a little bit more than when I was act- actively involved in the ecosystem. And something that has been true for the last three years, I feel it's still true in 2015, Africans want to solve problems. They need to solve the basic African problems. And I've seen a lot of companies pop up that are trying to address very basic things. So people always say, and I'm sure Musa you know, hears this all the time as well, who's going to build the next Facebook? Who's going to build the next Google in Africa? Will the next Facebook come from Africa? Will the next Google come from Africa? And I always find that question quite funny because Africans are actually not thinking about building a Google or a Facebook. It's almost They're like thinking, who cares? Yeah, exactly. For them, it's, well, who's going to solve the solar energy? Who's going to be the first? To who's going to help me cook Africa, you know, a little faster solar, than I Solar do. energy issues. Who's going to be the first to crack this ubiquitous mobile money problem across the continent? Um, who's going to be the first to deliver healthcare easily to people? And I think what I, I see some interesting things happening in, around mobile money, and I'm so glad we had the, the fintech uh, conversation earlier, because I see a lot of things happening in, 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 in terms of mobile payments and mobile money, and I see a lot of stuff happening with healthcare, and I, I do hope that carries on, because as much as I love, I do love Facebook because I use Facebook, um, and I and, and I love Twitter. I really want to see how we can integrate elements of those products into solving real African problems. And you're trying to solve some real African problems, uh, Andrew, with your startup, Lexno. So, um, tell us a little bit about that. So, in, uh, through the lens of starting this business, and maybe you can explain what it does. Sure. Uh, what problems are you trying to solve? And broadly speaking, where do you see yourself in terms of solving larger problems, say, for the continent? Sure. Um, so let's know to give you some background is an online platform that provides fixed-price legal services, primarily focused towards the small to medium enterprises and uh, social enterprises sector. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the primary drivers behind the creation of LexNode was to change the way that people accessed legal services because much like access to the internet should be a universal right, access to high-quality legal services should be a universal right. Uh, Whereas conversely, the situation at the moment is that it's something that's reserved for the few and the privileged. Um, So what we're trying to do is break down some of those uh, barriers to entry, primarily which are informed by a price point, And the way that we're doing that is to strip away a lot of the inefficiencies that have affected the legal environment to date um, through utilizing things like technology. Um, But I think to use Lexnov as perhaps a lens to uh, discuss the startup environment in South Africa in particular, which is obviously the one that I know best, I think that I'd describe it as something that's incredibly frenetic, um, much like a roller coaster, uh, bouncing from one high, trying to skip over the lows and get to the next high. I think that that's something that um, people who are generally trying to change, genuinely trying to change the way that things are done, particularly if you're trying to upset an industry as entrenched as the legal industry, um, you're going to find those obstacles. 
And I think that sort of the prevailing tenor of the discussions this morning um, are that people are desperately trying to innovate and trying to come up with new ways to solve problems that are uniquely African and uh, that affect the, the world's diaspora. Um, and the way that we're doing that is, is increasingly innovative, but that innovation is almost retarded by the regulatory and bureaucratic burdens that a lot of startups are facing. So I think Lexnov tries to break down at least, or tries to act as at least one cog in that machine to uh, remove those barriers to innovation and startups uh, being successful in, in the South African ecosystem. So a question to both of you, and you can uh, either one of you answer. Do you think, um, thinking as a startup and having worked for them and having started them and founded them, do you think that innovation is a sort of science do you, do, you, do you think of these problems as problems you can sort of work through logically, find solutions for, uh, and, 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 and meet and create solutions for profitably? Or is there some sort of blind belief that what you're doing matters and will eventually make money? Do you, do you understand my question? Yeah. Are we working with a science here when we talk startups? It almost feels like a an intangible idea, this idea, it almost, it almost has a rock star quality to it that I sometimes have a hard time pinning down. Do you feel there's a science to it, or is there, is there belief going on here? Is there a sense of, a sense of uh, I don't know how to explain it. Do you it's understand passion, my question? Really. Is there passion? Is, so, it, is this all just passion going on here, and some of it ends up becoming a Google, and some of it just sort of dies a slow death somewhere on the <laughs> internet? So innovation for me, and from what I've observed, it's... As an entrepreneur, and Andrew, you know, as an entrepreneur, if you're not passionate about what you're about to do, if you're not passionate about the industry, the product, it will never work because your passion is actually 90% of what gets it there. If you, um, I was reading an article this morning that said uh, South African startups, uh, South African entrepreneurs are willing to give up their family for their company, uh, which I laughed at the time, but actually someone who's willing to make that sacrifice is willing to make sure that business works. It's a terrible thing to say because you're willing to give up your family for a company. No, it's, a, it's an absolutely awful thing to so, say. Actually. But your company, is your, your company is actually a family, is your child, right? right? Because you're putting your, your entire self in it. And that's why I went with crazy. I wrote an article a couple of years ago that says there's a, an unhinged romance uh, when it comes to starting a business. Because it's kind of like that stalker girlfriend that you can't get rid of. But you don't actually really want to get rid of her. But you really can't handle the drama anymore. But you have to figure out how to make it work. I love, some, I love these analogies. Some, Mitch. I love reason, them. You know? So um, I think... I don't think there's no science to starting a business. Um, I don't think so. There, you can read books. You can look at you know spreadsheets till the sun comes wherever. But you actually have to do it. And I have this list that I used to keep at Mimbin. and I still keep every single startup I write about. I keep them on a <clears throat> horrible name, but dead list. And I check on them at the end of the year to see if they've survived. And that's how I measure success in Africa. Not who's making the most money, but who's actually staying alive after three years. Yeah. You're a lawyer. Surely you must have needed some level of uh, certainty when you began your venture. Some, some level of certainty that not, only, uh, that not only are you doing something important and necessary for the continent and for people in general, but that you'll, be, you'll succeed, like reasonable certainty that you'll succeed. And, and so I actually think that any sense of certainty is extremely misplaced. Mm. Um, I think that getting... Getting involved in a startup, uh, regardless of what capacity it is, it's in, uh, is a speculative and risky thing. And I don't think that there is a recipe for success. So where do you, where did you, so where do you find, or where does that make sense for you? 
Well, I'm married clearly to an extremely psychotic girlfriend. <laughs> like She's going to be listening to this, you know. I should not have used that analogy. I know, it's very, it's very appropriate. I think when I said it was a roller coaster, um, you'll go from signing an awesome strategic partnership, which you really think can change the world, to uh, having your website crash and everything falls down around you. Uh, so it really is, I think that's a very apt analogy, in fact, is um, like a very dramatic and, and psychotic relationship. So let's talk about trends on the continent with regards to startups. Um, it's interesting, as we've covered startups in the African Tech Roundup, there's been a lot of concern about uh, cost-cutting, uh, a lot of bloodlettings happening in the in the tech scene across the continent, whether it's uh, VOD companies that are absolutely going dead, um, uh, companies that were once hailed as the next new thing in Kenya, um, cutting more than half their staff, startups like that. What, what do you make? What sort of stands out for you in terms of the scene in general? What sort of startups? And you can name, uh, you can name drop if you like. What startups sort of stand out for you as as sort of poster children for what you hope or what we all hope will, will become the norm and not, not the exception? Hmm. I like how you look at me first. Well, I don't know. It's, it's, quite a, it's quite a broad question. But I think one of the advantages... And don't say Lex Snow. Well, no. I think Lex Oh, wow. <laughs> one of the advantages of being involved in, in Lex uh, and primarily because our passion cell is to the uh, SMME sector, is we get exposed to a number of incredibly innovative startups so when you mentioned earlier, is there a recipe to this innovation? No, but I, th I don't think there's a recipe to it. But I think the fact that the, the level of innovation that exists in the South African ecosystem in particular, while still in its nascency, is extremely encouraging. And I think that that's something that perpetuates the flavor of the startup ecosystem right up into Africa. Um, we've, we've done some really interesting work with guys who are disintermediating the telecommunications environment, guys who are... Uh, involved in financial inclusion, financial products, uh, trying to provide access for people trying to remit money back to their family back so home. So startups becoming a big startup. Startups, startup founders are are they basically looking to people like, looking to Lexnove to to partner to help them do what perhaps a regular law law firm would have charged them millions of rands to do. So absolutely. I mean, that, like I mentioned earlier, that's one of the, the primary drivers behind Lexnove is to allow the startup and entrepreneurial ecosystem access to high-quality legal services because I was billing out at 3,500 rand an hour excluding VAT and I couldn't afford my own hourly rates. Wow. So that, to me, speaks of a broken system and one that's ripe for disruption. And I think that uh, people like Joe and what they're doing at, at Opera in increasing access to internet is wonderful for people like like us who are operating an online platform. And I think that uh, you know the, the future of that innovation depends on people like Joe and like Brendan um, introducing those types of technologies uh, which facilitate that innovation. In terms of kind of what I'm seeing, uh, with Google I've actually also had a, an opportunity to travel more within the continent and just general meeting new startups and what they're doing. As I think that a lot of what is coming for Africa, and you say, you know, startups are cutting half their staff, the, the stars of the continent, uh, their, their, their shine is a little bit dimmer. It's, 
entrepreneurs in Africa especially keep thinking they need to reinvent, they need to build something new or reinvent something in a dramatic way. And they actually forget the, the base code of technology has already been written and it's pretty damn good. All you need to do is to innovate on top of that. So take a company like Google, for instance. Anyone heard of Netscape in the room? What? Look at some of us just kicking it. Um, so <laughs> Netsc- uh, yeah, Netscape, yeah, yeah. The, the, the first internet, if you will, okay. uh, the first commercial, sure. if you will. Um, they were doing pretty much everything that uh, Google does now. They had mail. Uh, you could search, and then Yahoo came, and they could search, and AOL. And what Google did was look at what all those people have done, innovate, and think of how can I make this easier and simpler for the user. Mm. That was it. Search, we didn't invent search. We just built on what existed already and just made it easier and made it more democratic. Um, and I think a lot of African entrepreneurs need to start thinking that way. One of my favorite examples, and I, unfortunately I've forgotten her name, is a doctor in Uganda who realized that most people in Uganda, healthcare was a privilege. You couldn't, it was too far to get to the clinic, the, the public clinics. It was too far to get to a doctor. So what she did was she built, using Google Maps, she pinpointed where people were and could get the medical service using maps, rather than them trying to figure out how to get to a hospital. And, and what, you know, I, I know I, I joked earlier saying what Lexner was doing, but that's really important. If I just bought a house, and I've been dealing with lawyers to try and pay transfer costs, which are really expensive, by the way. I mean, seriously. You need, like, another bond to pay a transfer cost. It's that expensive. But... I don't have any legal background, so I need to sit with a lawyer to kind of talk me through all that stuff, and that costs even more money. Um, now, if I had a service that gave me a simple, which I discovered existed through Uber, but that's a different conversation, that kind of gave me a breakdown of what I needed to know, it would have been easier for me to buy a house than the six months. I'm going to jump in done. quite quickly. There are two people itching to ask questions. Yes. First, just say your name, where you're from. Hey, my name is Naeem. I'm from uh, Cape Town, actually. Um, I'd like to ask a question with regard to African- Cape Town. Cape Town. Okay. Listen, yeah. hey. I didn't it was a bit delayed. Sheesh. Well, I All right, yeah. Book, yeah. <laughs> carry on, carry on. So you spoke about African entrepreneurs, you know, and what I really liked about what you said was we need to solve African problems, you know. Now, in the America, or you know, some of the startups in South Africa, we could think about problems that resonate with us, like the need to keep in touch with people and therefore create Facebook. Um, we don't really know what kind of problems people in communities are facing or rural areas that we'd like to be able to to address. And it's very easy for us to sit in Rosebank and Sandton and say, those are the problems that they're having, let's create a product for them to use. Don't you think we need a better framework of development? Don't you think we need a more community co-based design in a sense where you spend a lot of time in a community to be able to understand exactly what their problems are and not for you to tell them how you're going to solve them, how you're going to solve it, but rather for them to tell you how they would like for it to be solved. Um, are there any frameworks of that that exist? That's exactly what you should be doing. Um, so the problems I have are not the problems, the, uh, not the problems you have, for instance. My biggest drama is for municipalities to let me know when the water is going to be cut off without me having to get home to discover. But people have other problems with that. And what I have seen happen in most cases is people actually put a lot of effort into community research. 
that's what I remember when I was traveling, was trying to understand how Africans use technology and what they want from it. So we can, we can talk about how smartphones are going to take over and, and change how we do things. Yes, the smart, smartphones will rise, and the, the, the $50 smartphone is proving that. But the, I was just in Zanzibar. The bulk of the population are still on these tiny little feature devices. That's what they're doing. And all they want is for that tiny little device to be able to pay for something at a little roadside shop that they're buying their lunch or food from. And if you, like what, I mean, I used the Google example about how people say how to make money is the thing that people search for most. The truth is people tell you what they want. They're telling you all the time in search. I see it with the trends. People are looking for, um, you know, how do I get you near me? Where do I buy? Um, when the Madupi Power Station launched, People, the South African people were only searching for jobs around Madupi Power Station. They didn't care that load shedding was going to end. or They just wanted to know if there would be jobs available because um, the power station had launched. So they are actually telling you in some ways. And Facebook also just launched a new tool that um, tells you the most used words, I think it is, Musa. And with things like that, you can't actually decipher what people are looking for because they're constantly telling you in some shape or form. Except they have to be on the internet. To um, be telling you, they do. so but, 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 that but, still but, leaves out quite a few, well, quite a lot of people who aren't true, accessed. Yeah. Understandable, but mm. with something like Facebook, that is feature phone. You know, you can go on Facebook on your feature phone, and people are. I mean, when people go, yeah, but not a whole lot of people in Africa are actually on the internet. I have been to like deepest, darkest Africa, if you will. And I've seen people sitting on Facebook. I've seen them. I've seen them searching for things and trying to watch YouTube videos, Mm. you know. The access, they might use it once a week to conserve their data, as Joe mentioned, in terms of access to data, but they're aware of it. Yeah. And we just need to get them to that level where everyone can access it without having to spend their entire week's wages to do it. Quick one, Mitch. Counter to Naeem's uh, question, wouldn't the other question be, shouldn't we, instead of trying to understand their issues, shouldn't we teach people in those communities how to code or give them skills to develop their own solutions? Yeah, people are doing that. So, you know, you've got lots of people who are, so there's, she leads who's working with girls in rural areas as well. You've got a whole bunch of coding initiatives. In fact, personally right now, I think there's like far too many coding initiatives uh, on the continent. It's just, coding is a skill to have now. (laughs) It is one of the skills, like writing, it's a skill you should have now. But we have to think about other kinds of skills that people need as well. And when solving, when it comes to building a company to solve a problem, you have to think beyond your own self. So what is the product that I need? But what is the product that is necessary? So that's why I go back to healthcare mobile money. You know, mobile money is necessary. Um, There's a lot of unbanked people in Africa, and we have to fix that problem because as much as we just talked about banks not caring about the consumers, it's actually really important to be able to put your money in a safe place that will help you get interest. So people who are putting their money on the bottom of their beds, someone comes to your house, you lose everything in one day. So we really, I think, you know, when we think about the problems and how we solve them and teaching people things, we need to teach them how to survive 10 years from just today. Okay. Great. There's one more question. Yeah? Actually, there's another hand here, so keep them coming, folks. Um, yeah, so I, I had a couple of questions around uh, also just asking about the Google uh, incubation hub that's, that's going in Cape Town. I mean, the one thing that came to mind, I know that Google set up in Cape Town with the, the incubator that they ha- or, the, or the seed funding type uh, thing they got there. Um, and uh, obviously, I mean, we, some of us were involved in the Lean Startup Machine. It was first in Cape Town. Techstars is now starting in Cape Town. Do you think the startup community's given up on Joburg? 
Oh, that's a tricky question. Um, actually, there's a lot of incubators around Joburg. I've got I, my thoughts on I, that. I don't. I don't actually know if many people realize. I mean, Bramfontein is just humming with startup activity. I think Cape Town is a sexier place when it comes to you know entrepreneur entrepreneurship. Yeah. Not um, if you live in the township. You know, so true. No, not look. Hang on a second. No, I'm just true. saying. Kill just your saying. Cape Town hating people. I'm not. I'm not really. I'm just, um, but anyway, carry on. Sorry, Mitch. Joburg is looked at as a place for big business, right? So when you think about New York City, for instance, people think New York, uh, they don't think of New York as a startup ecosystem, but when you go to Chelsea, there's so many startups there, they think of San Francisco. So I think we just have the same dichotomy in South Africa. I mean, MLab, I think, is in Pretoria, and it's one of the most fascinating incubation hubs I've seen, and they don't get nearly enough attention. Cape Town is better at PR than Joburg. That's just it. Great. There was another question this side. I think it's Prashant. State your name and where you're from, please. Uh, my name is Prashant Baga, and I'm from Lilypad Leads, basically a marketing agency. Okay, based on what you were saying, Mitch and Naeem, um, I have a question and a bit of a statement. When it comes to the startups and empowering them in terms of becoming coders, or you can name it, put a blank thing, chiropractors, whatever you want to fill that gap with, everyone has these skill sets. And what I'm seeing in these incubators and also just in and around Africa in general are these guys are basically empowering themselves, taking their skills and trying to turn it into a business. But they're very good at what they do in terms of healing someone or coding something or creating something fantastic. But getting that idea to market is their biggest thing. And what I feel is that, I mean, I'm in Joburg. We work with many of these incubators. But I still feel as if if you have one incubator looking for 10 entrepreneurs, it's a hell of a lot easier to empower the entrepreneurs to get the ideas to market. And then, by all means, the incubators can go out and reach out and develop them even further. But it feels easier to develop the entrepreneurs via a platform or via a more cost-effective solution to helping them market. I mean, there's, you can put out content today. It's free. Mm. You don't need AdWords. You don't need an expensive website or anything like that. Mm. And those are the things that are helping these guys attract more business and grow their businesses. And I think that's where I feel incubators should then come in and take these guys and grow them even further. But I want to know what you feel. I mean, you, you're working for Google, and you see all of these people searching for different services. They have questions. And we have tons of people in Africa and everywhere who offer solutions to these people's questions and problems. But I feel as if there's a gap between them providing the solution to the end user. Do you know what, Mitch, before you answer that question, I want to piggyback that question and start with Andrew. Why? Because you're a lawyer, sir, and um, last I checked, there wasn't a lot of sort of business training, correct me if I'm wrong, that you get alongside training to become a lawyer. So how do you transition as a startup? And then you'll answer the question from, uh, from all the data you're seeing and all the projects you're involved with in terms of accelerating startups, uh, how you may, maybe could use that data to do what uh, Prashant was saying. But how do you bridge that gap? How do you go from just being a lawyer with a great idea and a couple of mates to help you set this up to like an actually successful business? And where did you go for help? So I think it is a, a very difficult thing, and I think it relates to what Prashant was saying. Um, it's an incredibly difficult transition to make, and you do have this idea uh, that you want to execute and, and bring to life. And what Prashant was referring to was specifically around the incubation and seed stage uh, hubs that, that do exist. I mean, they are out there. But one of the best analogies to starting a business, particularly if you're looking to do it online, is go out into the desert 
put up a store, have no road leading to you, and expect people to come and buy from your shop. Um, and the truth is that it just doesn't matter. So building content is one of the things that you do. But the difficulty with that is it's an extremely expensive, that education is an ex extremely expensive and an extremely time-consuming thing. Um, so the, the truth of the matter is that there is a massive divide between guys who've got great ideas and who actually get them to market, which is why the failure rate is so high in, um, in startups. But then again, if it was that easy, then everybody would do it. I'm not saying that the that there isn't a need for those types of services. But I think that in rendering those services, you need to have very easily identifiable and distilled metrics for the success of those types of, of hubs. Because a lot of what's happening in the South African ecosystem is an arbitrary deployment of enterprise development funds uh, purely because you just need to spend the money. Uh, tell me who I need to write this 150,000 rand check to. I've got four days left to clear my budget. Whereas what we need is uh, this year we incorporated 12 companies, registered 15 trademarks, and patented three inventions. Those are metrics that you can go back to and say, these aren't just vanity, vanity metrics. These are things that we've actually achieved by virtue of the deployment of our enterprise development funds. And I think the enterprise development fund arena is definitely something uh, that needs to be explored. And again, that's an education thing. It's still in its nascency, and most people don't know how to access it. And again, the innovation in establishing a fund like the Enterprise Development Fund, whether you're corporate or government, is stifled by the fact that there's so much bureaucracy and regulation involved in accessing those funds. So it's one of those difficult situations, but I'm not convinced that uh, seed, sta seed stage uh, innovation hubs are the way to answer that. So I don't know if you've got cool. a different view. Just before you answer that, I've got two questions I'm going to take back to back, then I'll hand over to you. Is that fine? Hang on, but let, let's let Mitch answer from cool. the, her Google perspective, and um, then let's go. So I'm actually not going to answer that from a Google perspective. Oh, will you? Um, okay. Interesting. Because essentially what you're asking is, you've built it, how do you get them to come, right? Because you've built a product, right? You need to actually take it out to the people, make sure they use it so you make money from that product. Um, and a lot of what I've seen is, like you said, there are a lot of seed stage uh, incubation that help you get started. They give you information you need. Uh, but there are very few kind of post-funding or uh, growth maybe. acceleration uh, uh, incubation. There's My favorite one is actually uh, Grindstone, which is based in Cape Town, uh, but they do a lot of stuff in Joburg. So Grindstone, what they do, they take businesses that are either in their third year, they are making money, they're either profitable or breaking even, and they teach them how to get to that next level, which is fantastic. And when they first started it, I actually looked at them and laughed, and I said, guys, really? <laughs> and then they showed a 61% increase in the revenues of all the businesses that they took on, wow. which I thought, okay, going to kind of sit there and apologize because I was wrong about this. Wow. And a lot of startups are trying to realize that they need to actually start taking that initiative themselves. Mm. So um, people like VC money, but they think VCs write checks and then they build stuff. They forget that VCs are actually experts in things. Um, so Knife Capital, who does uh, Grindstone, they don't just write checks. They say, we're going to write you a check, but you have to do X, Y, and Z. So you have to call this person who's an expert in marketing and ask them how to market your product. And you have to spend at least one hour with that person once a month to just understand. Um, you have to talk to us. When you're about to sign with a, uh, a partner, come to us. Let us see if they're, they're good because we know the industry. We know the people. Um, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs 
don't see that right now, but some of them are. When I was at Mimbo, and I had a guy in Stellenbosch call me up and said, hey, Mish, I have a startup. No, I'm not trying to pitch you to write about it. I just want you to give me some advice. Like, I am doing this. What do you think I need to do? Who do you think I need to talk to? And can you give me some advice on creating interesting content that will help us rank well? And it was, I said to him, come meet me. We spent five hours discussing things, and we went through websites, and I, I gave him some tips. And when I left, I wanted to write about the company, not because I just met with him and found a very fascinating company, because he came to me looking for advice, not for publicity. And for me, it was a far more valuable time spent than just giving him publicity. Because, you know, so I think there's a lot more of that coming. And there are tons of things online as well that help with this. I mean, people also search how to write a business plan a lot. So, <laughs> Cool. I'm going to take the two questions, then right. we're going to wrap up. We and you guys to... just think about what you'd like to say to wrap up okay. in like 30 seconds. And answer the two questions. And answer the two questions. My name is Lorato Senem Tsingeng. I run a business called Decode. It's a PR tech agency. And I'm realizing that the common denominator amongst the successful startups is the ability, or at least their competitive edge, is the ability to lower costs for users. But one of the things that I'm wondering, particularly in the PR industry, more money resides with the corporates more than it does with the SMMEs. Are we not going to find a point where saturation is going to come quicker for startups who are using a price cut or a cost? What is this? lowering the cost of the service or the product uh, to consumers? Because I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether is that the only thing that can make us successful as, as startups? Make a note of that. Going to take the second question. Uh, my name is Kojo. I don't know if my question will be redundant, but um, I think it's, it's tied to what you're talking about now. I worry that this whole framing, so framing everything as startups the minute it's in the tech space, separates it from the idea of entrepreneurship and small business. And the reality for me is that's simply what it is. You're starting a business in a particular industry. Therefore, you need to focus on, you know, like you said, Mish, about um, you know, searching for business plans. Um, so my question is, are we, not, are we not confusing ourselves by framing startups as this kind of creature on its own that exists in this mythical world when in reality it's starting a small business? And it's about creating the right models for your business. Okay. Cool. Can to, I recap, take that to recap okay, the two so, questions. So, Mitch, you can take Kojos because you've already... Uh, and, Andrew, you can take the first one. So, what's the first one? Recap. The first one was, are startups only about lowering costs? I think, essentially, that's what Lorato was asking. And Kojos was about, are we creating a mythical creature by naming them startups when, essentially, it's just about entrepreneurship and business, correct? And the yes. first question implies that su- most successful startups have... Be, they've been successful because they've managed to disrupt uh, incumbents that have been perhaps profiteering for a long time or charging unnecessarily high, and, and yep. they can come in and, and charge lower, yep. right? Okay, cool. Yeah, so my answer to that is that that's just one model that a startup can achieve success. I think uh, by virtue of the creation of uh, a new patent of innovation is just by way of an example off the top of my head. Another way that people can, can achieve significant success and I think, in addition to that, um, one of the issues that I have with our understanding what it is to be successful as a startup is tied to, to money. And I think that the rise of social entrepreneurship is, is something that I'm extremely excited about, where we look at more than just a monetary 
definition of success where there are several bottom lines. Where, and I think that there's a, there's a lot of incredible um, and very innovative startups that are doing that. But my answer to your question is uh, no, cutting costs is not the only way that um, a startup can achieve success. Cool. So could you 100% with you on that? Because um, when I think of startup ecosystem, especially in Africa, it's much more than just the siloed tech startup. Although, that being said, every business in the near future will be in some shape or form a technology business. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, when I, I'm Nigerian and I go to Lagos quite often and I love Nigerian street food. It is the best. If you're ever in Lagos, try it. Um, but there are all these little businesses, all these small businesses on the side of the road that sell different kinds of street food. And my big pain is that no one in the entire 50 million people that live in that city have thought to actually map all these places on maps so that when I'm in a taxi and I'm Package. I could just go, ooh, where's the closest street food to me? And I can find it on maps, and I can pick it up. So I think the integration of um, any business uh, with a piece of technology is what makes us think of this mythical world of um, startup in the technology space. Actually, Africa's biggest startup booming it. Ecosystem or the most potential, with the most potential, agriculture, and no one ever looks at agriculture because we all want to code something or we all want to build another app or something. But agriculture is actually—it's one place that there could be real success for African entrepreneurs. And most people don't—it doesn't get as much attention as it should because it's not as sexy as tech. It's not as sexy as a nice shiny app. Um, and also, I mean, I mentioned healthcare yeah. as well before. So I think. Startups should be any small business in, uh, in any context, not just the African uh, context, but any context. And I think the more we start opening up to talking about other kinds of startups as well, that M Farm is a really good one. Yes, it does integrate technology and agriculture, but ag again, it's something that's marrying two worlds that are quite important to Africa right now. And the more we start giving exposure to other industries and other small businesses that are thriving, then you know, the more it'll be. I heard on the radio my way here, there's a lady that's making 140,000 rand a month as her net salary. She started like a small beauty business when like four years ago. I mean, for me, that is a real successful startup, but I haven't seen anyone write about her business. I just heard about it on the radio. And you know what? Uh, there's a video I just watched, uh, Strive Masiwa. One of Zimbabwe's uh, more prominent tech entrepreneurs say that if he were to do it all over again, he'd actually invest in something boring like farming, yeah. like you say. He, he'd, he'd totally go with boring tech. And we're, we're planning to rectify the fact that we don't have a panel for boring tech, quote-unquote boring it shouldn't, tech. It shouldn't be a case of boring tech. It should but, just be a case of a conversation that encompasses everything. Well, boring I suppose tech. no one really wants to talk about how we could turn salt water into clean water so we don't have to worry about water. You know what I mean? So, I mean, they, it, it's, it's more fun to talk about Google and apps and, and stuff like that. And, and, and to, your, to add to, to your answer, Kojo, we, we had this debate a lot on African tech, on the African tech roundup, therefore and I, about what is a startup. And I think slowly he's winning me over with regards to uh, creating delimitations of the use of that word uh, that involve traction, that involve the speed of, of growth, uh, delimitations that are constructive in helping you understand whether you're actually hitting metrics, you're actually making a difference. I'll, I'll give an example. A, a farmer could be considered a startup by, that, by some definition if he went from zero to a million in a year somehow. He is a startup. It's, yeah. it's but, not because he should be considered. Well, he is I mean, a startup. No, <laughs> but there is, a, there, there is an argument for determining what counts, whether you're just a small business or you have an inherent potential to scale 
or you have an inherent potential to have hockey stick growth and, and, and maintain it. Well, I think that's an entirely different conversation yeah, is how, how you define what a startup actually is. Well, it kind of is because, so, because he wants, he'd, he'd like that, uh, Kojo, for what I'm saying, by what I'm hearing, might want that definition to stretch over everyone who decides to start a business. I'm going to cut you, Andrew, ah, not only because we're running you. out of time, oh, but I think snap. But we, we're should, getting interesting. we should stop using Silicon Valley terms of startups and definitions of Silicon Valley. We should come up with our own. Oh, yeah. How about that? Yeah. That's actually quite a good Thank one. Thank you. And, and, and that's a lot coming from you, sir, who doesn't like to use that term loosely. So um, anyway, folks, sorry, I get, I get so riled up. Apparently. But I love it. So this is what we're about here on uh, the African Tech Roundup and indeed at, on the annual roundup. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me thank Mitch Atagana of Google and uh, Andrew Taylor of Lexno. Put your hands together. Now, we hope you enjoyed today's show. Once again, we'd like to thank Opera for helping us do more and partnering with us to bring you the insights we shared today. A special thank you to Mitch Atagana and Andrew Taylor for spending time with us at the event. Next week, we'll publish a panel discussion looking back on the year in terms of gadgets and apps. It was a very laid-back panel, featuring Deputy Editor of Staff Magazine South Africa and Technology Analyst Craig Wilson, Director of Project Fable Kojo Bafo, and Digital Content Specialist at Caxton Magazines and Contributor at TechGo.co.za, Jade Brenner. Yeah, man. Be sure to join us for that. Till next time, though, it's happy holidays. I've said this three times in a row. It's so cool. Happy holidays from me, Andy Lemasugu. And in four days' time, if you celebrate Christmas, Merry Christmas. From me, Tefomo Happy. Have a smashing week, folks. Cheers, guys. <laughs>